You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victory's crown, except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight in all this. Here ends the reading. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm the minister here at Cornerstone Homebush Bay. A special welcome to you if you're here for the first time. I'm really excited that you're here with us this morning, and I hope that you'll find your time with us encouraging. Uh, just before I begin, I want to underline again the uh, Shine Initiative next uh, Sunday. In particular, I think to our own elders, uh, Ray and Jeff, will be doing the sh Shave for Shine. Is that right? Where they'll be shaving off their facial hair to raise money for Shine Missions. Uh, collectively, the money will go towards a wonderful project in translating uh, the resource of God's big picture in Japanese to our uh, brothers and sisters there. Uh, Tokyo has got 13 million people, and so the, uh, the benefit of them receiving that resource translated would be immense and vast. And not to mention as well, Paul Tripp's parenting resource will also be translated in Japanese. Shave for shine. Jeff and Ray will be shaving the facial hair. That should be the most fun thing that you should expect. So please give your money generously there. Uh, each week we're looking at a core value, I guess you could say, a key principle, animating principle, which undergirds the mission of Cornerstone. And the mission is this, to reach out, to make disciples, and to build a biblical community to the glory of God. That's why Cornerstone exists. That's why Homebush Bay exists. Uh, there's no better time, I think, to join in the life of the church than during a series like this where you know what we're on about and why, what we do here and why. And if we're not on about it, or if we're not on about it as much as we should, then this is the series to help us get back on track. And this morning, we're taking a look at the second part of that mission on making disciples. To make disciples. Uh, when Fayette and I were engaged about eight or so years ago, uh, we uh, went for our pre-marriage pre-marriage uh, uh, pre seminar training. We went away on a retreat down in the south coast with a couple of other couples and a group leader. And during the retreat, uh, it was led by um, an older Anglican couple, I remember. On one of the sessions, the retreat leader said, right, in this session, we're going to talk to you about conflict. In marriage, you're going to experience conflict. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And when you experience conflict, you can come at it two ways. You can either be a shark or you can either be a tortoise. I think there was another animal as well, but those were the two that stuck out for me. You can either be, and, you know, bite the other person's head off and be a shark. Or you can hide in your little shell and kind of be like a tortoise. So you can approach conflict as a shark or as a tortoise. Which one are you? So all the sharks put their hand up. I was a shark. 
And all the, um, <laughs> thanks, oh, I'm not asking your hands, right? <laughs> Unless you want to volunteer that. Uh, and all the tortoises put up their hands, right? My wife was a tortoise. And uh, that was a good exercise at predicting how you'd be. But what I noticed, right, was that after several years of being married to my lovely wife, I realized that I, was, I became less of a shark and more of a tortoise myself. And because what happens, right, is because you eventually, I eventually realized that the shark thing doesn't work. She keeps retreating to a little shell. And I'd get tired of the whole ordeal and I won't come anywhere near the conflict and then I have to make a big effort again to approach the issue we had. I wonder if that's like you in terms of going about conflict. But it's not just conflict, right? It's anything that's important. Uh, you here who are students, students here, uh, and I know there are some of you, how much is procrastination a big problem of yours? You know you've got an assignment coming up, and oh, I'll just put it off the next week. And then next week comes along, oh, I'll just put it off, you know, the, the, the next day. And then the night where it's due, you know, I'll just slam down a six-pack of Red Bull and smash it out the night before it's due. Is that you? You see, most of us, when we're faced with a task we know is important, where we know will be difficult and demanding, tend to find ways of avoiding it. And making disciples is one of those things for the church. You know, I'm the first to be reluctant to make sweeping statements like, you know, this is the one thing by which the church stands or falls. But I will say this, provocatively even, that discipleship is the activity by which the church grows or dies. That's going to be the thing that I'm going to put my chips right there. That discipleship, disciple-making you know, to develop committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the activity by which the church grows or dies. And that's just not me saying it. It's also the statistics. You know, every serious Christian knows discipleship's important. But in the Australian Bureau of Statistics, between 2001 to 2011, that is in the past 10 years, the church has been slowly in decline while the population of New South Wales continues to grow at 11%. Over the past 10 years, over one-third of churchgoers in the 25 to 34-year-old age bracket turned away from the church. In other words, we're losing people in the church in every age bracket under the age of 55. And increasing the percentage change in every age bracket above 55. You know what that means? In other words, the church is aging rapidly. It's headed over a cliff. When the uh, New Church Life Survey was held in 2011, they found that church members, when they asked church members what was the greatest strength in the church, church members said, worship, inclusion, faith. Worship, inclusion, and faith. But when they were asked what they perceived to be the greatest weakness of the church, the survey said, lack of empowering leadership, lack of faith sharing through church members, and lack of imaginative innovation. In other words, it's the lack of making 
and multiplying true committed followers of Jesus who will meet the challenges of today that is allowing the church population to decline. You see, discipleship is the activity by which the church grows or dies. It's what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do. It's the means by which he told Peter he'll build his church. And it's also the dying instructions of the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. And here's where we come to the text. Three things we learn here about discipleship. The need for discipleship, the nature of it, and the nurture of it. The need for it, the nature of discipleship, and the nurture of discipleship. First then, the need for it. All right. Now, if those statistics weren't glaring enough already, I want you to listen to Paul and have a look at the context. He starts there in verse 1. You then, my son. All right. So clearly he's going on from what he said before. Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 6, was told to be bold in the spirit as a young leader in the church. God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. That's the purpose to which Timothy has been called. Through the power of the good news of the gospel, and with that boldness, Timothy was to keep what Paul has taught him, the scriptures which he learned from his childhood, and to protect it, to guard it, to live it out, and even suffer for it. As Paul was suffering for it, he was under arrest at this, at this time. But here's where you see the sad thing, right? At the end of chapter 1, if you have your Bibles open, we're told in chapter 1 verse 15 that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Homogenes. Wow, right? Now, if you ever thought, ah, how amazing would it be if my name was in the Bible? Well, think again, right? Not this kind of shout out. These two, Phygelus and Homogenes were called out, named and shamed as those who deserted Paul. And we don't know why they deserted, but to say that they deserted him clearly meant that they wussed out on something where they should have been standing on, committed to. Clearly, right, for these two, and I don't know how much it took, I don't know how little it took, but when the going got tough, when the chips were down, and when the odds were stacked against them, when it got a little bit too hot under the collar, too close to the danger, arrest even, they fled. They fled. You know, how interesting is that, right? One act of cowardice and their names are in his letter to Timothy in the scriptures for all time. Right? It doesn't pay to be a coward. It really doesn't pay to be a coward. But Paul, I want you to notice here, Paul had an intimate connection with Timothy. We're going to look at that more in a moment. He says to him, these two have deserted me, and Nisiphorus hasn't deserted me. Good on him. So you then be strong. You then be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong. Hold on to the things you were taught from me, the scriptures which you learned from since you were a boy. In other words, in the face of danger, in the face of distractions, in the face of wussing out on being committed to the gospel, Paul is encouraging Timothy in his faith. You see, here's why you need discipleship, right? And I'm not saying that discipleship prevents people from deserting Jesus. If you remember, Jesus, one of his own 12 disciples, fell away. But here's why we need to be a disciple-making church. You are not in a neutral zone. You are not in a neutral zone. 
You're in a battle against distractions and dangers all the time. Like Phygelus and Hermogenes, you too might have started strong. And, you know, these two were probably key leaders in the church, on the staff team, elders even. They were legit gospel partners who abandoned the gospel field. Uh, I remember my wife Fayette telling me that when she was in youth leadership in Brisbane, she once heard a speaker at a conference who said this, that you who are Christian, right, take a look at the person next to you. Take a person sitting on your left. Take a person sitting on your right. You know, in 10 years' time, one of you is not going to be a Christian. And strangely enough, it was close to the truth. Now, I'm not saying here, I'm not going to get into the whole question, right, of can someone fall away? But clearly the danger was real enough for Paul to say, you then, however, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, these so-called ministry partners of mine have deserted me, deserted the gospel we proclaimed. Don't be like that. You know, one of the interesting things about the statistics of church decline is that when you zero in on them, you notice that the glaring gaps where young people bleed out of the church are between high school and uni and between uni and the workforce. Right? Between high school and uni and between uni and the workforce. And it's not hard to see why. Right? Each stage upwards gives you greater independence, greater freedom, greater exposure to the world. Do you think it's a neutral stage? Listen. If we aren't making disciples for Jesus, the world will be making a disciple of you. You either are following Jesus in the world, or you're following this world apart from Jesus. That then is the need for discipleship. We need to be a disciple-making church. Cornerstone Homebush Bay needs to be a disciple-making church. Second, this text also tells us about the nature of discipleship. The nature of discipleship. Uh, Four quick principles I think we learn here about the nature of discipleship. That discipleship is relational, intentional, doctrinal, and demanding. Relational, intentional, doctrinal, and demanding. First, it's relational. You then, my son. You notice that? My son. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. We see that as well in chapter 1, verse 2. The two had an intimate, familial connection. You might say Paul couldn't plead with Timothy the way he could unless they had built up that kind of gospel partnership. And it was more than just talking shop. You know how sometimes in gospel church ministry, sometimes feels like organizational speak, you know, what uh, needs to get done, who's doing it. But these two, right, were intertwined in each other's lives. They were practically family. But they were also part of a community as well. Have a look at verse 2. The things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Witnesses. Now, this could have been referring to Timothy's baptism or his commissioning service or whatever. The point is that Timothy learned and grew under Paul's ministry within a gospel community. So you can't say that you can grow as a Christian on your own. You can't say that you can spend months away from the church thinking that you can still grow as a believer. Why? Because you can never grow nearly as fast as when you're in a community that can give you the word of God, serve you with the word of God. You can't be 
on your own. You can't think that you can grow on your own because you know you got blind spots in your life that you can't see that only a way that a community can reveal. You grow amongst witnesses. You grow amongst accountability. You grow amongst relationships. First of all, we learn that discipleship is relational. But second, it's also intentional. Intentional. That is, anyone can hang out. And churches are very good at putting on socials. But the task of the gospel is more than deepening friendships and doing life together. It's about passing on the gospel to others. The things you heard me say, Paul says, entrust to reliable people who'd be qualified to teach others. Now, Timothy was to actively look for people who are able and reliable to teach the Word of God. Now, not many of us will become teachers, right, in that narrow sense, but all of us, all of us are to speak the Word of truth to each other in every sense. Like Colossians 3 says, to let the Word of God dwell among you richly. So don't, of course, can your socials, but be intentional in your socials, because discipleship is intentional. But thirdly, it's also doctrinal. What is it that Paul was to pass on to Timothy? Verse 2, it's the things you heard me say. In chapter 1, verse 13, there is a pattern of sound teaching. Timothy was to hold on to and protect. You know, at the time where the New Testament was written uh, and realized, these oral patterns of teaching was, to, was, was what preserved the church against false teachers. Today, this pattern of sound teaching might be what we call systematics or traditions of truth-telling or even catechisms. Uh, A while ago, we started catechisms with our children, um, the shorter catechism with kids, and we've been telling them um, uh, the question and then the answers. That's how catechisms work. First question in the shorter catechism for children is this. uh, Kids, who made you? Answer, God. What else did God make? God made everything, a daughter would recite. And why did God make you and everything? The answer, because for his glory. Well, they can't say glory. They say glory, for his glory. All right, very good. One day when uh, Adora found it a little bit hard to, s- to sleep, or maybe Adrian, I'm not too sure, one of the kids, um, uh, they were frightened because they were sleeping in the dark and there was a shadow in the, against the wall and it might have been it looked like a monster or something like that. Anyway, it freaked Adora out. She started crying and crying and crying. Forget, I think, went in there. And, uh, and basically, Adora was scared. So what do you do? You comfort her. And then I, I remember uh, Fayette telling me this. Uh, I hope I'm getting this story right. But uh, Adora was, was asked to recite the catechism about um, uh, where is God? And the question was, can, God, uh, can you see God? The answer, no, I cannot see God. But God always sees me. And she was able to to bring that up from the catechisms that we gave her. You see, we, we laid onto her a pattern of sound teaching. It got her to go to sleep, not afraid of monsters anymore, because I cannot see God, but God always sees me. God's watching over me. He looks after me. You know? Discipleship is doctrinal. But fourthly, it's also demanding. It's demanding. You see, here's where you get to those three famous images, right? The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And we're going to go more into that in the last point. But notice the demands on each of them. The soldiers to be focused, single-minded, not entangled with civilian affairs. The point here, right, is that there is uh, not that there's a church work here. 
and the Monday to Friday job here, but that you must be distraction-free in your commitment to Jesus in all of those spheres, not looking to easier activities to busy yourself with uh, from the challenge of the gospel. The athlete, of course, is to compete according to the rules, not to take shortcuts, not to take the easy way out. You've seen, right, haven't you, the outrage of the news whenever a high-profile athlete like Lance Armstrong or Maria Sharapova gets caught out for positive drug testing. What a cheat, we say. What a cheat. Well, Christians and leaders can cheat all the time. We can water down the message, not take God's word seriously. You see, the athlete is to compete according to the rules. The hardworking farmer is to work constantly through blood, sweat, and tears. In the ancient world, in fact, uh, most farmers were not landlords. They were tenants, uh, not landlords. So the landlords owned the, sh- owned the crop, and it was not uncommon for the farmers to give the tiniest share to those who actually worked for it. Don't be like that, Paul is telling us. Don't be like the absentee landlord expecting benefits without having to do any of the work. For here's the reality. Discipleship is demanding. It's demanding. And did you notice there in the context of danger, in the context of distractions, in the context of desertions, these three images kind of have a little negative feel to it. What happens when the soldier who's supposed to be on the front line wusses out and walks home? What happens when an athlete cheats? What happens when a farmer is lazy? What happens to the food on the table, his livelihood, his family? You see, these images are more than just a uh, farmer, soldier, athlete. These images are more about the coward, the cheat, and the bludger. The coward, the cheat, and the bludger. This is what you like if you don't take the demand of discipleship seriously. So, how about you? Are you relational with other believers? Are you investing in others? Are you intentional with other believers? Do you have anyone out that you're seeking out, meeting with, praying for? Are you working hard at your doctrine? What goals can you set for yourself this year? To perhaps read a book? Get some theology into you. Are you taking the demand of discipleship seriously? Single-minded, ready to compete, diligent. That is the nature of disciple-making and discipleship in the church. So what does that look like? Practically, holistically, how do you nurture that kind of discipleship in our church? Well, that brings us to my last point, the nurture of discipleship. A few things we see here. I'll just pick out a few. Firstly, be a Timothy and get some Timothys in your life. Be a Timothy and get some Timothys in your life. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Timothy was someone who received a ministry. All right? He didn't just minister to others. He was ministered to. Someone was a spiritual father for him, Paul in this case. So who are you learning from? Who are you walking alongside? You might be someone here who became a Christian relatively late in the peace. You might not have had mothers and grandmothers who believed like Timothy had, but put yourself in a position then when you can receive faithful teaching in a community. If you're a girl, find an older sister to meet with. If you're a guy, find an older guy to meet with. Give him or her permission to ask the hard questions, challenge you to grow. And then afterwards, get some Timothys in your life. 
Be the spiritual older brother. Be the spiritual older father or sister to someone else. Set some goals if that helps. Make a time frame if that helps. But be a Timothy and get some Timothys in your life. That's point number one. Number two, second, think about discipleship in the everyday of life. Disciple others in the everydayness of life, the everyday of life. Now, what, I, what do I mean by that? Well, did, did you notice, notice something here about the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer? They're not just, I used to think uh, one way, I'll think another way now. They're, they're not just costly vocations. Have you noticed that? They are everyday vocations. The soldier is single-minded every day. That much is implied. The athlete competes. Well, I mean, how do you compete? You train. You train every day. That much is implied. The farmer. Well, that's not just implied. That's explicit. You know, the hard-working farmer. In other words, following Jesus is an everyday calling. You don't get your Christian on on a Sunday and go back to work like the rest of the world on a Monday till you arrive at your connect group. No, all of life is devoted to Jesus. He is for all of life. And if so... Let me tell you that discipleship isn't just what happens at an event or with a program, but it occurs in the everyday rhythms of your day-to-day life and in all the in-between spaces as well, in community with other believers. You see, churches are typically pretty good at putting on events. Cornerstone, I think, is wonderful at putting on events. But in the interest of making disciples, you might need to consider what are the events that make the most disciples or have provide the very best spaces for disciple making. Could it mean that we have to perhaps put on fewer events, but deeper, richer connections with other people? Don't hear me say now, don't stop having events, but don't make it all about the events either. Make it about the people. Make it about the richer connections, the deeper connections, the intentional connections. Don't just think about the spaces you can create. You know, any church, any organization can create spaces, events, conferences. But think about the very best spaces, which will allow deeper discipleship to occur and nail those down well and do those well. Think about discipleship in the everyday of life. Third, Uh, nurture the greater gospel movement in your heart. Nurture the greater gospel movement in your heart. You know, I used to think, right, that Paul uh, was to pass the gospel onto Timothy, you know, the way that an athlete passes on a baton. You ever thought that way, right? The baton analogy, um, you know, that you you run the race and you hand the baton on and you the next guy takes over. I used to think a lot like that about ministry, uh, and that's partly because of the athlete picture that Paul uses here and elsewhere. But one passes on to one. That's discipleship, right? We even speak about one-on-one discipleship. And really, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I did a whole chunk of that, and I still do a whole chunk of that. But I want you to notice something. I didn't notice this until I looked at it a second time. Paul wasn't just expecting a one-to-one effect. Do you notice that? Sure enough, Paul passed the gospel on to Timothy, but look at verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. Others also. This isn't just one-on-one. It's one-to-many. It's a movement. 
It's a movement. It wasn't just meant to be one to one to one. It's meant to be one to many, to many, many more. It's a movement. So he was imagining that the gospel was to go not just to Timothy, but to all those that Timothy would entrust with the gospel until the whole gospel exponentially expands out into the ancient world. Now, in case you're thinking, well, now that, that, Dan, now that's, that is just Paul, right? That is way too frenetic for me. That is way too grandiose a vision for me. But come on, listen, look, where, where's Paul as he's laying out his vision, huh? Where's Paul? He, he's in prison. He's in a jail cell. Where are you? You and I are sitting in the luxurious comforts of a state public school right now. Paul had the Roman government entirely against him. He's incarcerated. You have the whole state government on your side, giving you this facility to meet in. What excuse do you have to have even less of an ambition than Paul? What excuse do you have to have even less of an ambition than Paul? You have way more freedom now, far more resources. You know, I know that freedom is now under threat in this country and, you know, the window is closing down and all that. But we are far, far away from what it was like in Paul's day. Nurture the grander gospel movement. In your heart, each person right here, right now, what are we, like 30, 40, maybe 45 people? You take even just two people to intentionally invest and trust the gospel to, passing it on. You know how big this gathering could be in less than six months if you devoted nothing else than to be in just two people's lives intentionally, intensely, frequently, Nurture the grander movement of the gospel in your heart. But more importantly, and I'll close with this, can it be anything else? Can it be anything else but grandiose? Can it be anything else than grand? If you're someone here today and you're certain you're not a Christian or you're not certain that you are a Christian, you have to at least ask this. What is so attractive about this gospel message that compels Christians to make followers and even to suffer for it. What's so attractive about this message that Paul is so on about the expansive movement, suffering for it, dying for it even? And when you ask that question and you really start seeking, you would see that the gospel that Christians are told to hand on is the most revolutionary message ever heard. It's the message of the grace that is in Christ Jesus, who, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 10, destroyed death and brought life and immortality. There is no greater love in this world to be loved by the God in this gospel. There's no greater hope in the world than in the eternal life secured by this gospel. Find out more. Reflect on that. Bully some Christian friends into your corner and get them to help you dig into it. And if you are a believer, here is your challenge. Do you know that what you have is beautiful, world-changing treasure? We are treasures in jars of clay, Paul says. But are you seeing more clay than treasure? When you see what you have is the glorious treasure of the good news of Jesus, you too would be compelled to pass it on and trust it to others. You'd be less excited about structures and programs and events. Not that there's bad or anything but you'll be truly more excited about the gospel message in all of those activities more than anything else. And because you're excited about that, you'll be creating the very best spaces available 
through the church to see the message ring out. The other day I was surfing the net and I came across a video clip on the internet uh, which gets this point across. Uh, I'm going to play it for you here and see what you think about it. Here we can cue the video, slam the lights. I'm not sure what you thought of that, uh, but I hope you were inspired. For here's the crux of what church is about, what you ought to be about, what we ought to be about, making committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and being unleashed upon the world. So here's what I see now, right? We are a unique congregation, no doubt about that. No other congregation I know could have planted two years ago without a pastor, still grow in some measure, relocate, couple of times and still have very willing hearts and hands. What I see now in this congregation are hands that have been calloused by a labor of love, especially when the chips were down. It looks like you were more surviving rather than thriving. I love that about you, about each of you. That's what I see now. But here's what I see could be, that this congregation can make and multiply more committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the everydayness of life. Your, my, my, the hair in the back of my head is standing up even as I say this. You, you are already in each other's spaces. From here on in, you can go deeper. You can lean in. You can be intentional towards others. Seek out of the fringe, the hurting, and you can multiply. Who's one person you can make an impact on in an intentional way? And to get there, we need to work together. Not just by working harder, but by working smarter. 
Working towards a truer vision of discipleship and disciple making. That's what we're called to do. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. After I'm done visiting other groups, I'm, I'm going to start picking up a few guys and to meet up with some leaders, some new members, even some non-Christians. And I'm going to begin investing in their conversion and growth. I'm meeting up right now with the elders, Ray and Jeff, your two elders, weekly. And a big thing on my agenda is how are we going, how are we going in making disciples for Jesus? Are there systems that we can put in place? There's a good system to have. So as to make sure that we, that we aren't simply caring for people in crises, but that we are growing as followers of the Lord Jesus in all of life, in all of our families, in all of our relationships, and in the workplace. See, here's what I see could be a year from now, five years from now. Every single member here, right here, can say like Timothy, I've been taught how to live by an older, wiser brother. I've been taught how to live by an older, wiser sister in this congregation. I have been entrusted with the gospel. I'm passing it on. I'm part of the movement. I'm not a coward, a cheat, or a bludger. I'm a disciple, and I'm here to make disciples to the glory of God. Won't you join me in that vision? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have sent your Son into the world and through him sent us into the world. And we thank you, Father, that you have reached out to us that we might become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling us out of darkness into your light. We are sorry, Father God, for the times that we have perhaps been lazy, for the times that we have perhaps cut corners, for the times that we have been distracted, not single-minded but double-minded, being distracted by the flow and the ebb of life, distracted by the world and drawn away from the true mission that Jesus has given us. Father, we repent of that. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for singularity and solidarity of mind together as this congregation, that we might be ever committed to be making disciples, firstly of ourselves, that we might follow you, and then outwards to others, so that all may hear the good news of Jesus, and all might be growing into be the perfect man or woman of God that you are making us to be when Jesus Christ returns. And we ask for this in his name. Amen.